Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU The Voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM, WLPP. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blank Getting the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you are gifted with me, Angie Claro, coming to you from San Francisco. We've got some old business. We've got new business. We've got good people for you to hear from on both of those. Let me catch you up first on something that Brad and Desi have been on top of. That is the ongoing battle over First Nations sacred ground and environmental concerns with the Dakota Access Pipeline. If you don't know, that's an oil project that will take, if it gets built, 500,000 barrels of crude per day from North Dakota to Illinois. And both multiple American tribes and groups like Earth Justice have been working together to block the project. That got violent this weekend. So let me first bring you up to date, and that is from Earth Justice. And here's how they describe this going on their site. There are two broad issues. First, the pipeline would pass under the Missouri River just a half mile upstream of the tribe's reservation boundary where a spill would be culturally and economically catastrophic. Second, the pipeline would pass through areas of great cultural significance, such as sacred sites and burial grounds that federal laws seek to protect. They go on to explain that the tribe sued the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is the primary agency that granted permits needed for the pipeline. The focus of the lawsuit, now mind you, this was before the weekend, the focus of the lawsuit is that the Army Corps took an illegally narrow view of responsibilities to protect and engage the tribe when it granted the permits. The lawsuit alleges that the Corps violated multiple federal statutes, and that includes the Clean Water Act, National Historic Protection Act, National Environmental Policy Act, when it issued the permits. And shortly after the lawsuit was filed, the pipeline company, Dakota Access LLC, intervened in the lawsuit. So now they're a full party as well. So this is what went down this weekend. And again, we're staying with the Earth Justice site on this. On Saturday, September 3rd, Dakota Access Pipeline and Energy Transfer Partners used bulldozers to destroy Standing Rock burial sites, prayer sites, and culturally significant artifacts. Now, the location of those sacred sites had been identified by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in court documents filed less than 24 hours earlier. So the documents were filed, a ruling is awaited, and they brought in the bulldozers anyway. The protesters surged onto the site on Saturday. The guards in response brought out dogs and mace, and by the time it was over, at least one person was bleeding from what they said were dog bites, 
Others said they had been maced in the face. I really got to commend Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! She was on the scene and gave some amazing coverage, and I pulled a few excerpts of that, so listen up. We're standing at the construction site of the Dakota Access Pipeline. It looks like there are at least three bulldozers that are, to people's surprise at this moment, uh, actually bulldozing the land. There's a helicopter above, there's security here, and hundreds of people have been marching up when they heard that the construction site is actually active right now. Come on, guys, we got to stop this! Men, women, and children, the bulldozers are still going, and they're yelling at the men in hard hats. One man in hard hat threw one of the protesters down. More security trucks are pulling up. There are some protesters on horseback. Amy Goodman, this guy makes me in the face. Can you show us the label? Look, it's all over my sunglasses. It just makes me in the face. A dog. Dog bit him right now. dog on me. This fucker throw the dog on me. Look at this. Look at this. Let me say. Let me say. the dog on me. No, you did it on purpose. Let me say. Let me say. Ma'am, your dog just bit this protester. Are you telling the dogs to bite the protesters? The dog has blood in its nose and its mouth. Why are you letting their her dog go after the protesters? It's covered in blood. After the protesters said that the dog was bloody from biting them, they then pulled the dogs away, and now pickup truck by pickup truck is pulling away. We'll see what happens. The protesters are moving in to ensure that the security leaves. So on Sunday, and again, this is from the Earth Justice site, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe filed an emergency motion for a temporary restraining order to prevent further destruction, since inevitably some is already gone, further destruction of the tribe's sacred sites by Dakota Access Pipeline. And that motion seeks to prevent additional construction work within 20 miles of that area until a judge rules on the previous motion to stop construction. So now there's both the initial ruling that the protesters and corporations were awaiting from the court, and on top of that, this additional emergency ruling they've asked for. And Brad's going to keep you up to date on all of that. There is one additional note, and this is from the Denver Post. Morton County Sheriff Kyle Kirkmeyer said in a statement, individuals crossed onto private property and accosted private security officers. It's interesting, he points out their private, kind of putting that distance there, accosted private security officers with wooden posts and flagpoles. Any suggestion, the statement added, that today's event was a peaceful protest is false. Okay, I'm not pretending for a moment that I have reviewed all available video on this. And in fact, all available video probably hasn't been released yet. But for the record, I've yet to see any that supports that claim of attacks with polls and posts. Of course, the pipeline stuff is is not the only hot news topic. In fact, it's been a very, very busy news day when you consider that we just came out of a holiday weekend. Let's start out, for example, with, of all things, Bill Cosby's lawyer saying that there is racial bias and prejudice amongst the sexual assault allegations. For those of you who've been in a cave, for those of you not remembering quite what went down with Bill Cosby, we're not talking about one or two cases of allegations that he drugged women, that he took advantage of them against their will, that he used his position 
and his fame to not only force these women into compromising position, but to keep them quiet afterward. We're talking many, many, many dozens of women. I don't want to give this too much airtime because the guy doesn't deserve it, but I think it's worth noting that there are isolated cases of playing the race card. Now, let's remember, that's a diminishing phrase to use when someone brings up an element of race in any given subject. You can minimize the importance of it by saying, oh, he's playing the race card. Ergo, it doesn't matter. Ergo, it has no validity. But when it comes up in the case of Bill Cosby, oh, come on. Let me cite his lawyer here, Gloria Allred. Pardon me. Hmm. Bill Cosby's lawyer targeting Gloria Allred, who's represented some of the women. And we're going here to ABC News for this to get this quotation from Brian McMonagall. That's Cosby's lawyer. Mr. Cosby is no stranger to discrimination and racial hatred throughout his career. Yet over the last 14 months, Mr. Crosby and those who have supported him have been ignored. While lawyers like Gloria Allred host press conferences to accuse him of crimes for unwitnessed events that allegedly occurred almost half a century earlier. Have we not heard this before with a little bit of different costuming? Nobody saw this, so it's just he said, she said, or more like he said, and she 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 said. But yeah, nobody saw that, so it didn't happen. That allegedly occurred almost a half century earlier. Well, he spent about a half century in the business. Half century of fame to spend. Half century of influence to abuse. Somehow this is being brought up as a credible reason that we should consider Bill Cosby a victim of racial discrimination. The time has come, his lawyer, Brian McMonagall, goes on to say, to shine a spotlight on the trampling of Mr. Crosby's, Mr. Cosby's civil rights. Gloria Alred apparently loves the media spotlight more than she cares about justice. Hmm. There's an assertion without any backing. She calls herself a civil rights attorney, but her campaign against Mr. Cosby builds on racial bias and prejudice that can pollute the court of public opinion. And while the media repeats her accusations with no evidence, no trial and no jury, we are moving backward as a country and away from the America our civil rights leaders sacrificed so much to create. And you know he's waving a flag at this point. What I'm seeing here now, granted, you and I are not together going through the entire transcript of everything they said and all the press releases they're sending out with it. But all I'm hearing here is a set of allegations, a set of claims. By golly, that's racial bias. By golly, that's a woman hogging the spotlight. By golly, this happened a long time ago. By golly, how could you? But from the way I'm reading this initial report, he's just saying, he's just saying, He's not saying it's racist because this incident, this particular phrasing, the way it should have been phrased, and some substantiation of these accusations. But you know what bothers me most about this is that there are racist elements to so many things that when it's abused like this, then when it really is the playing the race card, almost making an ugly dark game out of this, it hurts everybody. It hurts everybody. Another issue that came up over the Labor Day weekend, oh my goodness, a CNN international poll together with ORC that said Donald Trump is two points ahead nationally among likely voters. 
the first live interview poll in six weeks to show Trump in the lead. Politico picked this up and talked about how Clinton fared better elsewhere, how it's just a volatile time for polls. But here's the deal. What I've seen covered in very few places, but worth noting, is for whatever reason, the stats that I have seen posted omit voters between 18 and 34. Seriously, no voters between 18 and 34 reflected in this polling. Now, we had an Emerson poll come out last week that is still reliant completely on landlines. And again, it was much more negative for Hillary Clinton than the other polls that we're seeing. Landline polls are notoriously unreliable per most of the people in the polling business. I looked up some data on that. I looked up some studies on that. And it is not quite as skewed as some of the other polling professionals would have you believe. But it's fair to say that if you want to get a true survey of likely voters, you have to talk to the massive amount of people or some fair representation of the massive amount of people who don't use landlines. That's just considered the new reality now. And yet, Emerson came out with a poll with no landlines. And now, unless there's some other paperwork I'm not seeing, CNN has just come out with a poll that excludes millennials, 18 to 34, in this survey of, quote unquote, likely voters. So there's some other reason for them not to talk to this massive age group? Or do they just assume if you're between 18 and 34, you're not going to vote? Very peculiar. Bottom line, taint nothing sure till the counting's over. Moving on to another less critical but still interesting tidbit in the news. Remember Donald Trump's peculiar deadhead-looking doctor and his commentary about Hillary Clinton's health? Blogger and HuffPost writer Robert Ellisberg picked up on something that nobody else seemed to. And here's what he wrote on his blog, ellisbergindustries.com. I hadn't planned to write anything about politics today, he said, but I just now caught up with the Rachel Maddow show. One of the segments was on the strange interview Donald Trump's gastroenterologist gave to NBC News. There's a brief passage in it so ghastly irresponsible and stuns me. There hasn't been outrage. And I decided, he said, to come here to the keyboard. Skip, skip, skip. It came near the beginning of the interview when Dr. Bornstein is asked how he got involved He relates that the Trump people said Hillary Clinton would be releasing a letter from her doctor. They wanted to know if he would write something about Trump. As a matter of fact, he tells the interviewer, quote, I know her physician. I know some of her medical history, which really isn't so good. So I said, why not? And Robert says, let's look at that again. I know some of her medical history, which really isn't so good. And he goes on to note that doctors do not reveal their patient's health unless they've been given permission. Doctors most especially don't reveal the health of patients of other doctors. And doctors really do not reveal the health of any patients or provide any sort of diagnosis of any patient for whom they haven't done an examination to anyone, especially a reporter for national TV news, on camera. Now, to be clear, he goes on, He doesn't take a single word of what the doctor says to be the truth. Smart guy. But he asks, how well does he know Hillary Clinton's doctor? When did they talk? I don't know, he said, if this is illegal or not. I don't know what law states about another doctor revealing health information about someone else's patient. I do know it's seedy and irresponsible and shameful. So I was curious about whether... There is any jurisdiction here, any concern whatsoever with medical boards and licensing units that would say, hey, 
you can't discuss this woman who is not only prominent and in a position to end up running the country, but someone whom you haven't treated and someone her doctor should not be talking about. To find out about that, oh, by the way, we're going to come back to Robert because he's got a great story about Hillary Clinton, a Hillary Clinton button, and Berlin. That's later in the show. But first, let's stick with creepy, weird Dr. Bornstein. Flash Gordon helped me out on this. He is legendary. He spent a good chunk of his time in the 1980s leading up the medical unit at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. He's one of the founders of HEAR, protecting the hearing of music artists and crews. And he writes regularly on medicine and motorcycles. So I gave a call to Flash to ask about the creepy, weird Dr. Bornstein. What's his ethical boundary here? Well, the boundary on a treating physician, and if Dr. Bornstein is not a treating physician, this doesn't apply to him, is that the treating physician is not to relieve any protected health information. That's covered by HIPAA, which is the Health Information Portability and Accessibility Act. And as such, doctors are not allowed to reveal any private information about a patient, including things like lab results and lab tests, without the patient's permission. If a doctor heard something by hearsay about a patient who is not that doctor's patient, then I don't see how HIPAA would apply. In other words, he would not have a right of confidentiality about a person who is not his patient. Ah. So if Dr. Bornstein, for example, found out somehow about Hillary Clinton's health, that is more problem with whoever was responsible for keeping that information private, which would be Hillary's treating physician and that office and all the people in the office and the people in the lab and so on. But everybody who works in medicine is required whether they work in a lab or work as the front desk in an office, about HIPAA and about the importance of protected health information. But once that information has leaked out, it's like trying to get toothpaste back in the tube. It's not that easy. And it's not a prior violation for one physician who doesn't have the doctor-patient responsibility to release uh, police information. Got it. I, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, but if you are, there's there are so many reality shows now and so many cases where a doctor is called on and they put out the warning, well, this doctor didn't treat this person, but here's what he thinks about her case. And, you know, you had uh, Dr. Drew lost his show on CNN just after he had opined how he thinks Hillary Clinton is so sick on, on a radio show. Is there either a regulation about that or at least an attitude amongst medical ethicists about how appropriate that is? Well, I'm not a medical ethicist, and I don't play one on TV. <laughs> but uh, from what I see, people are willing to say just about anything to grab some eyeballs or grab some ears to make something interesting. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing to do, but I don't know of any specific regulation. It's probably poor form to talk about another doctor's treatment, but I don't know of any illegality associated with it. Got it. I know you're in the middle of a busy day, and I really appreciate you taking the time for a clarification for us. Flash, thank you. Sure, anytime, Andrew. That's Flash Gordon in Moraine County, where in addition to his writing, he runs a private practice.
Next up on the broadcast, a conversation with Jessica Luther on both Brock Turner and her new book on sexual assault in college football. Hey, it's Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. And while the Bradcast and Bradblog.com fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation, we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by Bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one-time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions that those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds to stop by bradblog.com donate right now. And thanks. It is the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero, in for Brad and Desi today. Convicted sexual abuser Brock Turner is back with mommy and daddy in Ohio, having registered as a sexual offender. Protesters have been outside the house, some of them armed, and the story, appropriately enough, is not going to go away. Coincidentally, writer and blogger Jessica Luther has just come out with her new book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Definitely time to talk to her. So here's our conversation. So, Jessica, thanks for joining me on Mad Show today. Thanks for having me. I got hold of you because of everything that had happened with Brock Turner last week. And uh, our listeners already know that I'm it was furious about what happened with him. Uh, I'm furious that this is an ongoing theme in the sports world. There's a certain this entitlement to, you know, treat women like chattel, like objects and get away with it. That's it. I mean, it happens in every walk of life, but the getting away with it seems so consistent in sports. And you've got a brand new book out that touches on those same things. So we're going to get to that. But first, let's talk about Brock Turner. Brock Turner got right. out of prison. What, not out of prison, out of jail, his three-month jail time. And, and he went on home, and we're hearing from some folks that he is, in fact, punished. He's punished because he's going to be a sex offender for life, and despite the fact that he's still ID'd in news stories as Stanford swimmer, Brock Turner, that at least this will hang over him forever. So give me your take on that. I mean, I, there is some accountability with the sex offender registry, I'm sure, He'll try to get off of it. That, that tends to be how people respond to that. Um, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to know what justice should look like. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for us on the outside. I mean, I just keep thinking about the woman that he assaulted. And I, she wrote that beautiful letter and was, um, God, it was so good. And, you know, I just wonder sort of what this feels like for her, right? Did, mm-hmm. Was this justice for her? Because that's really the point, right? Yeah. And and that's true in all these cases. It's like that Turner went to jail was a big deal because that doesn't even happen most of the time. So it's hard because it is infuriating that it's only six months. He only serves three. Is this what justice is? Is this what we are looking for in accountability? It's, it's so hard to say. Um, but I do just try to keep thinking about her. And I'm, I hope that this was in some way justice for her. 
What you actually touched on something I wanted to ask you about, and that's the commonality between what we saw happen with Brock Turner and what we normally see in these cases, because you've studied many, many cases. Uh, Brock Turner, for Mm -hmm. example, let's start with this. Uh, Stanford and the local sheriff's department ended up pointing fingers at each other as to why Brock Turner's mugshot didn't get released. Nowadays, that kind of thing gets noticed. When when someone is accused of a sexual right. assault and you get this really, you know, great-looking guy in a suit posing for a picture, for example, that doesn't happen to black people. That happens for white people. So how common is that, that, that it seems as though the parties involved in investigating and prosecuting also seem to be colluding to keep his image up? Yeah, well, the pointing fingers at each other thing is really common. Um, when we see these cases, when people start questioning and they're like, what happened? It's always like, well, ask the school, ask the PD, ask the prosecutor. Uh, it's, it's hard for anyone to sort of say, we messed up. This is how it should have gone. And you're completely right. I mean, the mugshot thing was kind of baffling and upsetting because mm-hmm. we are so used to people who have, I mean, he by the time the story broke, he had been convicted. Like, it wasn't even... Like he had been accused, and we're still using a picture of him um, in real life. There's something about the mugshot that ties it directly into the crime and the violence, right? When you see that, you know something has happened. Mm-hmm. And when you take that, that's such a cultural signal for us at this point. So it is a big deal that they weren't using it. And, I mean, I'm not surprised to, whenever we get these institutions or these, um, the authorities saying it's the other person's fault. um, that's just, that's so normal. Mm -hmm. What what else have you seen in his case that you think adheres to the norm, things that we can expect to see in whenever a prominent athlete or, Mm -hmm. you know, prominent privileged person is accused of something god awful like this? What can we expect to see that we did in fact see with Brock Turner? Oh, well, I mean, everything to do with his defense, as far as the culture at Mm -hmm. Stanford, that that was the problem was not his own actions, but that he was in a part of a culture where there's alcohol and people make bad decisions. This was almost the exact same defense that a Vanderbilt football player recently used. He actually was convicted. There's a mistrial. He was reconvicted. He used the same argument twice. Obviously, it failed both times, but this is a really popular way to um, to ref- um, deflect away from the actual perpetrator of the violence, right? It's not mm-hmm. his fault. It's the other stuff around him. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the short sentence, the fact that the judge seemed to empathize with him, that the judge himself had some kind of sporting background, um, all of those things uh, just struck me as very um, common in the, in the cases that I often read about. Yeah, the judge in this particular case kind of poo-pooed the idea that he had any connection athletically. Well, I wasn't the lacrosse captain. I, in fact, I played on the lacrosse team. But I thought the connection people were making is to a certain mentality and a certain clubbishness that happens when people move mm-hmm. into, you know, the privileged sports area. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the way that it reads to me is that he saw himself and this kid, right? Um, and he doesn't have to be the captain. He doesn't have to be on his way to the Olympics. There is a, a way that, you know, Brock Turner was actually doing an individual sport. There is some team stuff with that. But, yeah, certainly team sports um, mm-hmm. seem to manifest this. You know, we talked about the locker room culture, the cohesiveness, the loyalty to the team. And, you know, it's just, it's very hard to look at everything that happened with the case and not think that the judge was bringing some of that to the courtroom with him when he made his decision. 
I'm talking to Jessica Luther, and we're going to talk in a few minutes about her brand new book, literally just out, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. One of the reasons I called you, Jessica, was because in some of the coverage of the Brock Turner uh, story, you made a reference to Lizzie Seberg, and this is, an, uh, this is a story that has bothered me for a long time as a South Bend, Indiana native. This involves Notre Dame and what I have felt as a native has been their long collusion to protect their precious sports teams and all the individuals on it. I, some people may be familiar with the name. Let's, let's talk to those who are not. Can you briefly give us her story? Yeah, Lizzie Seberg was a freshman. Was she at Notre Dame or was she? Was she at the college next door? Uh, she was. She might have been yeah, at St. Mary's. Does St. Mary's sound right? Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't remember that specific detail. Um, but she was hanging out with one of the Notre Dame football players. We since now know his name, but um, she said that he assaulted her, which sexually assaulted her, and that he groped her. Um, there was no penetration in the way that we normally think of assault. But she still reported it and. Um, didn't face retaliation, both from the player and another football player. And she ended up committing suicide. Um, what did that retaliation look like? What, what was retaliation? There was, a lot, there was a lot of threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were text messages. Her parents, her father, is actually in the new documentary, The Hunting Ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shows the text messages that were, you know, um, I can't remember specific wording, but it was mm-hmm. very much like if you tell them you're going to, you're going to pay for it. Right. Um, and you know, as you, like anyone who is in South Bend knows how powerful the Notre Dame football team is. She's a freshman in college. Um, it, she, yeah. So she ended up committing suicide. He ended up, the player ended up going into the NFL. He was just punished, um, last week or the week before he is missing a couple games because he shot or no, he killed his girlfriend's dog by blunt force trauma. That was uh, him. I did so not ago. know. Wow. I did yeah, not know. I didn't the make the same connection. player. Wow. Yes. Um, but you know, Notre Dame is an interesting school for me because the earliest cases that I found were in the mid seventies and they were from Notre Dame and they have, they just, that's one of those schools that pops up over and over again with the intersection of college football and sexual violence. And then in the hunting ground movie, they actually interview a former uh, campus policeman from Notre Dame. And he is very specific about how he was told not to interview football players and people report them for any kind of crime that they, they had to get all kinds of approval in order to talk to the players that there was this level of mediation between um, the cops on campus and, and the athletes in order to protect the athletes. So it's a really interesting and um, problematic space, Notre Dame. And Lizzie's story is kind of uh, the most tragic of, of the ones that we know about. Did you cover, I want to move on over to your book because that's key to all of this. Mm-hmm. Did you speak to anyone at Notre Dame for your book? I didn't, no. A lot of the, the book fun- is very much sort of a conglomeration, mm-hmm. um, pulls on a lot of information that we already knew that like, you know, in theory, someone else could have just written the book in the same way that I did. Um, so, no, I didn't actually speak with anyone there. So you're, you're taking all these stories and putting them together. Right. And then analyzing patterns that come out when we look at them holistically. I don't want to give away everything, but can you give us an <laughs> idea of some of the patterns you found? Sure. 
um, well, the book is divided into chapters of like one is about the response that coaches and university administrators give. One's about the NCAA's failure to sort of respond to any of this. And there's a chapter on how the sports media talks about these uh, crimes when they break. And it's, you know, for say uh, coaches, it's often like um, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Nothing is wrong with um, the culture in the locker room. Or, you know, there's a lot of, we see interaction between local police departments and athletic departments that are often problematic, um, at the least, it leaves you questioning sort of mm-hmm. what's going on in these towns. Uh, the NCAA always says it has, they have nothing to do with it. That's up to the universities. They're not, you know, for all the minutia that the NCAA will regulate, this is one thing that they say they have nothing to do with. Um, and then with the sports media, it's a lot of like, let's get back to the field. Like, let's talk about them only as athletes. This is, you know, what, how, what's the impact on the team? Okay, you know, case over, everyone move on. We're done talking about this. And it's these kind of patterns that um, they just, re- I mean, they literally repeat all the time. I, when a case breaks now, I just wait to see like, which thing are they going to hit on? They only have so many options and they're going to use them. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, you were when you were talking about how the colleges approach this and the idea of protecting them, it reminded me of the Steubenville high school rape case. And yeah, when, one thing that kept coming out to me about that, and I don't, I mean, this is like a social phenomenon that you need all kinds of scientists to examine, but that is the identity of the town around the football team. It's the football team or the sportsmen or you know whatever athletes. It's as though they are placeholders for the citizens. The citizens are very involved with the team as part of who they are. And I think that that might be a hint as to why it's hard to eradicate this. Yeah, it's certainly localized. Um, We see it, like you said, especially with high school, um, which is something I hope to look into more in the future. Uh, But even on the college level, we think of, you know, like Tallahassee, Florida, where where Florida State is. That's where I went to school. The whole town is sort of built around this university and this football team, Knoxville, Tennessee, Waco, Texas with Baylor. Um, it's, that's a common thing. And so the town is financially invested and culturally invested in the team as well. And then on the college level, I think it even extends out. Part of what's hard about reporting on this is the uh, level of fandom associated yes. with these schools mm-hmm. and sort of how intensely angry fans will get for you even suggesting that there's something going on in their athletic department. And, and I think there's a lot of identity, you know, people identify as alumni, they, they feel an ownership over the team and, and the people who play on it in a way that um, it, I think is very similar to sort of people who live within the town as well. So you have a sort of large scale version of that with fandom that I think can be really, um, Difficult to manage when you're the one reporting on this, I'll say. Yeah. Is there, is there any consistency from case to case about how the women, how the, the alleged victims are viewed? Oh, I mean, yeah. And it, it's, it's the same as almost all cases of this kind of violence. The people who report are often, the first thing that happens is their, quest, their credibility is questioned. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always, are, it, are they lying? Um, what will they get? Like, what do they earn out of this if they lie? Um, That is so insidious. And then there's sort of an added level to it when it is, you know, quote unquote, famous 
athletes, um, that she's doing it for notoriety, uh, that she wants the fame of it or something like that. Um, and almost all of those digs are to paint her as someone you don't have to believe. Wow. Well, I'm going to end this conversation just because there's so much unpleasant stuff coming up. <laughs> Seriously, it is very, it's very hard to talk about because it's, it's a huge it problem, and I'm really glad you covered it. So thank you for your new book, and thank you for talking to me, and I wish you best of luck with it. Thank you so much. And we've been talking about unsportsmanlike conduct, college football, and the politics of rape with the author Jessica Luther. Jessica Luther, her book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, I can't say that, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape just hit the stands. I promised you fun with Berlin and a Hillary for President button. That is next on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's the broadcast. Desi and Brad have the day off. I'm Angie Coro sitting in. What do the people of Berlin think of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Robert J. Ellisberg, who writes for the Huffington Post and the Writers Guild and tipped me off to that earlier story about Donald Trump's doctor, he decided to find this out. So it turns out his first challenge was to find a Hillary Clinton button in the state of California, a Hillary Clinton for president button. It turned out to be quite the search. Robert, thanks for giving me some time here. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me here. Well, the first thing you did was you tipped me off to maybe grabbing a doctor to discuss the ethics of that, thus the follow-up with Flash. But you had mentioned to me that you found yourself a Clinton button in L.A., which was its own venture, and then you went off to Berlin with that, and that started off some intriguing conversations. So let's start with, with the hunt for a button okay. in L.A. Well, the thing was, among my other writing, um, I write about politics and sports and entertainment, but I've also written a tech column for many years for the Writers Guild of America, which I post on the Huffington Post, and I got invited to this big tech trade show um, every year in Berlin called IFA. Uh, it's been going on for like 90 years, sort of the European version of the computer electronic show, CES. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And it's in Berlin every year, and I knew I was going there, and I knew absolutely that at some point, not only are we in Germany, but Berlin, I would be asked about Donald Trump being in this American group, because if, if, if any city in the world is attuned to a concern of right-wing fascism and white supremacy, it's Berlin. Oh, yeah. 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 And... And so I wanted, I was preparing my answers to the questions ahead of time. And I said, I know, I want to get a Hillary Clinton button that I can wear, which will just be a shortcut to all conversations. No, I am not a Donald Trump supporter. Yes. But it, it became so <laughs> much a funny adventure trying to track a button down. Um, first, first, I wrote into the, went to the 
Clinton website and, and ordered a button. And I waited weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, like days before I was leaving, I called up and I said, what's going on with my order? And they were out of buttons and they had just come in and we can get you one next week. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, I'm Can't leaving on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> this does me no good. And how in the, on earth do you run out of buttons? This isn't like a seasonal item. <laughs> you know, you know you, you've got three months for an election, so just have a big bin of buttons. <laughs> one would think, so, yes. One would think. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll contact uh, Clinton for president office in Los Angeles. And I did the research and tried to track one down. There were about three offices, none of which list phone numbers, oh uh, which struck me as odd. But what I discovered over time was that California is not a high priority to the Clinton campaign because they have like a 98% chance on Nate Silver's side of winning the election. So they're... they're offices here are, are limited and they don't feel, I guess, a need to publish their phone numbers. So, so California is that, now the why bother state. It is a why bother state, exactly. That's a very good phrase. And so I said, well, okay, I'll try the Democratic Party of you know Los Angeles. Called them up and they don't have any Clinton buttons. They had banners. They don't have, <laughs> but, which was lovely, but I wasn't about to wear a better across my shirt. Although that <laughs> so, would have started some great conversations, I'm sure. And it probably would have caught a lot more attention, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't They didn't even have any buttons, which struck me as odd. Okay, fine. Do you have a phone number for uh, the, the Clinton offices in California? No, they didn't have the phone number. You'd think a little bit of coordination would nuts. be nice. Yeah. Yeah. But again, there isn't any need to coordinate because there really isn't any concern. So they didn't have it. So I kept trying and calling other places and checking, couldn't find anything. Finally, as a last-ditch resort, I decided I'm just going to drive down to one of the offices. <laughs> I said, even if I don't have a phone number, it's not that far. It's about a 20-minute drive. I want a button before I go to Germany. Right. I drove down there. It was difficult to get to the office, which is a long story, which I will not go into, but I finally went into the office. It's a good-sized office, but there were only two people in the office. Um, in, in fairness, it was lunchtime, so maybe I'm assuming some were out to lunch. Right. Um, I, I explained to the, one of the people what I wanted, a button. Said, nope, they don't have any buttons. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Nope, they they didn't have any buttons. They're getting some some in. They were getting some in too. <laughs> um, I'm telling you, this was a great adventure to get a button. I really wanted a button to go to Germany with. And they 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 did have some big buttons, and I don't particularly like wearing really big buttons. The ones that sort of like the size of a donut or yes. whatever. Yeah. And and they weren't good buttons. They had a picture of Hillary Clinton on and slogans. It was odd. Uh, then well, finally the guy said, you know what I can do? Wait a second. And he went to his backpack and he went searching through his backpack and he had one of his own personal Hillary Clinton buttons in the bottom of his backpack, oh which he gave to me. <laughs> bless him. <laughs> yeah, bless him indeed. And it was, I, I thought it was really wonderful of him. And it was a funny adventure trying to get the button. But as I said, I really wanted it so I could wear on this trip. And, I, I had it, and I 
did, and I wore it, and I got some interesting reactions from it. So it was all worth the effort. I'm talking about Robert Ellisberg, Robert J. Ellisberg. You can find his work at the Huffington Post, Writers Guild of America, and on his own blog at ellisbergindustries.com. Okay, so we're moving into the actual reactions you got in Berlin. Oh, okay. Um, by the way, just, just so you know, Ellisberg is one L and with an E, E-L-I-S-B-E-R-G. Thank you for that. Okay. I've, I've gotten many Elsie berries and things over, over the years. So. Yeah, try having a name like Koiro. We could talk forever. Yes, and people will say, oh, Daniel Ellsberg, is that, and that's spelled a little bit differently. So anyway, the reactions, there were, there were two separate reactions. One, a more political reaction. A couple people at different times saw the button, came up to ask, and overall, by the way, everyone I spoke to, saw the button, was appreciative of seeing the button, and was aghast at the concept of Donald Trump um, getting this far in the, the race for president of the United States. And this first group, the group of two separate people, wanted to know about if Donald Trump seriously had a chance and how could this happen. And we got into long, detailed discussions. But what I found most fascinating was when I tried to explain the situation and that it's not Americans who are for Donald Trump, it's the far-right-wing Republican Party that's nominated him, and he's behind in the polls and behind in the Electoral College. What fascinated me is they sort of semi-understood the Electoral College, not exactly, but most Americans don't quite understand the Electoral College. But they also understood a lot of the details that I was explaining, like when I got into the whole um, uh, Kizer Khan family and his wife and all of that, they were aware of that, and they were aware of the details. And what all this struck me as fascinating was that they knew how important the American election was to them and their lives. And I tried to put the other perspective on that. I don't think most Americans know who are the leaders of other countries, let alone the details of campaigns when other countries have presidential elections. Whereas the Germans I spoke to, which I'm sure isn't true of all Germans, but many of them really are aware of the details of the U.S. race, which says for all the Republicans and far right who say, you know, care about other countries and overseas and it's just about America and America first and I understand all that but when you speak as a presidential candidate the words really really resonate around the rest of the world mm -hmm. the rest of the world really pays attention because it affects their lives you know it's interesting my, my nephew when he went to Berlin during the and, and he was young at the time I think he was you know, mm -hmm. 1920 he went to Berlin during the George W. Bush years and mm -hmm completely unscientific, but anecdotally, you know, he'd go to the bars at night and people were a little standoffish and he finally wore his shirt. And coincidentally, one night he wore his shirt that said, I didn't vote for Bush. And everybody uh, talked to him. Uh, <laughs> that every, was, yeah. Yeah. And I guess I'm kind of surprised to hear about the reaction that you got, because if you pay attention to what's happening with the refugee crisis in Europe, you can get the impression that everyone's turning very much to the right. And that, you well, know, I, I, you, you're right. And especially there's an election, it was an election in Germany the day I left, and mm -hmm. there is 
a far right wing that did better than expected. Although the, what got lost in a lot of the news stories is the center left party did the best um, in in Germany. But it, 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 and, and also my experience is just a handful of people. I am sure there are people who like Donald Trump there, but that was the reaction I got. But the best reaction of all was this little sort of pub that I've gone to a few times. And it's a wonderful owner who speaks very little English, but speaks it enough. And I walked in with the button with a group of people, and he saw it, and he goes, and I... This is not meant disrespectfully. This is how he spoke, because he doesn't speak great. It was, Hillary, Hillary, I love Hillary, oh, Hillary, oh, Hillary says, I love Hillary and Bill, and he's giving me the thumbs up, great, and he says, oh, that's great, so it's, you know, Hillary, and he said Hillary and Kane, he goes, Hillary and Kanye, Hillary oh, and Kanye, <laughs> he said, nope, nope, it's Kane, oh, so, great. he says, can I have the button, and he reached for it, he wanted the button, oh, and, no. and I said, no, and another one of the group said, oh, just give him the button. I said, you don't understand. The length I went to get this button so I could wear it on the trip, <laughs> I, I, I can't give it to him. But I realized later, I had you know the, those really large buttons I mentioned oh, that yeah. weren't great. I brought some of those along in case I needed them to give out. So I went back the next day and gave him a couple of those. And he was thrilled to get those. But he he loved Hillary. And he loved Bill. And giving the thumbs up, Hillary and Bill, oh, he loves them. That is awesome. Although I love the idea of a Clinton-Kanye ticket. That would be amazing. I know. Me. The Clinton-Kanye ticket was hilarious. <laughs> oh, and, and what I left out of the earlier conversation is how much they love Obama. Oh. They just loved Barack Obama. And he, they were going on and on about how much they lo- they liked him. So it was a very interesting group of reactions I got, all for the sake of intentionally wearing the button um, to sort of shortcut a lot of conversation. And it was very effective. Well, that, that is really illuminating. Thank you for telling, taking the time to tell me about sure. that, because I really wanted to hear that tale. Well, it was a long tale, so thank you. <laughs> and worth the time. Robert J. Ellisberg is on Twitter. You can find him at R-I-L-I-S-B. E R G, did I do that right? R E. No, I did. R E said R I. We'll try that again. R E R E L I S B E R G. I too can spell Robert. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey, since we've been on medical stuff today, I want to draw your attention to a columnist I was not familiar with, and. She does an amazing job for ArsTechnica.com. I found her looking for another story, and it was one of those happy, glad coincidences because it turns out her work on the EpiPen story, antibacterial soaps, opioids, addictions, Alzheimer's, she's doing amazing, amazing work. Let me just acquaint you with some of the most recent stuff she's done, but you can find her on ArsTechnica.com. Her name is Beth Mole. Now, we all know what happened with EpiPen, the price gouging that, of course, was a matter of business. No, it's not. It was a matter of greed. But at any rate, Beth Mole points out in a story that was uh, put together for this week that the New York Attorney General announced his office is investigating Mylan Pharmaceuticals, the company behind the EpiPen, for potentially using anti-competitive terms in contracts that it had with school systems. And she goes on to say, these terms allowed schools to receive Mylan's EpiPens for free or at a discounted price as long as they didn't buy any competitor's products 
for a year. Now think about that in terms of tying the hands of schools for moving from one product that may not be working for them to a competitor's product. This is the kind of thing that a company will tout as an example of how generous it is. The children of our coming generation, look at how we care, et cetera, et cetera. But as Beth Mole notes in her article, the terms may have helped Mylan hike the price of that life-saving medical device without facing competition from similar injection products. Since 2007, she notes, the year Mylan acquired EpiPen, the company has raised the price of pens by more than 400%. So in that news release that came out from the New York Attorney General, no child's life should be put at risk because a parent, school, or healthcare provider cannot afford a simple life-saving device because of a drug maker's anti-competitive practices. Now, here's the threat. Quote, if Mylan engaged in anti-competitive business practices or violated antitrust laws with the intent and effect of limiting lower-cost competition, we will hold them accountable. Now, of course, this is New York itself. This is not yet a federal issue. But New York is no small potatoes when it comes to education and impact on federal issues, impact on state rules across the country. So we can hope for the best that this investigation on behalf of the New York Attorney General's office will, in fact, that they engage in anti-competitive terms. Because if they did, that is the wedge in the wall. That is the possibility that they can be punished at the level that they ought to be. Now, like I said, this is not just about EpiPen. This is about Beth Mole, who's doing some amazing work. And here's something that carries a lot of optimism on the issue of addiction and pain. I've known people who have been in 12-step and have had some really intimidating medical procedures done without pain medication during or after because their sobriety is so important to them, justifiably so, they can't risk having pain medication that they might get addicted to. What Beth Mole has written about is that with the opioid epidemic killing more than 40 Americans every day, it looks as though the search for ways to curtail the use of the addictive drugs might be showing some hope. According to a report, I'm reading from her column now, according to a report in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, an opioid drug referred to as BU blah, 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 the number, was able to alleviate pain in a dozen monkeys just as well as other opioid painkillers like morphine. But unlike every other opioid drug, it showed no signs of being addictive, even at high doses, where others inhibit, inhibit the respiratory and cardiovascular system, which can be fatal. This was harmless. This is harmless. Now, b before I have to move on to other things, do look that up. That's, that's the new opioid being looked into. And again, it's Beth Mole at Ars Technica. And the last one is kind of a, a pet topic of mine. I was very pleased to see that this happened. We're surrounded by antibacterial soaps, antibacterial shampoo, antibacterial hand wash. And what we've discovered about this stuff is, for one thing, it's solving a problem that nobody had in the first place. For another thing, these tend to be liquids instead of bars. So we've got more plastic waste that most people don't recycle. 
And for another thing, there's a decent amount of evidence that if you raise kids in this antibacterial atmosphere, their immune systems end up compromised. They're not like the kids who are allowed to go eat bugs and play in the dirt and end up with a robust immune system because it's actually been exposed to things to be immune to. Well, this is the last bit that I bring you right now from Beth Moll. In a final ruling announced Friday, the FDA is pulling from the market a wide range of antimicrobial soaps after manufacturers fail to show that the soaps are both safe and more effective than plain soap. This applies to any hand soap or antiseptic wash product that has one or more of 19 different chemicals in them, including the most common, triclosan, or trichlocarbon, which is in the bar soaps. Manufacturers have one year to reformulate their products or pull them from the market entirely. And that's a good way to wrap up the Bradcast, where Brad and Desi have taken the day off. I'm Angie Quirrell, sitting in for them, enjoying it as always. They will be back on the next show, and I do hope to see you soon. This is the Bradcast. Bradcast.